Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 39. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my doctor and yours, the man on the show, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. It has been a beautiful, <laughs> dismal <laughs> December. <laughs> How are you doing, my friend? Oh, well, I'm a little disappointed because it's been cloudy and rainy for two days, and I'm trying to follow Jupiter and Saturn, which we'll talk about a little later. Yeah, it has been just downright foggy, misty, cloudy, dank oh, outside. To I wanted to go out and blow my leaves, and I can't do it because they're all soggy. Sick. Yes. But thankfully, we have much better things happening on Equinox. It's always bright and sunny and cheerful on the, the podcast waves. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Turn your eyes away from the dismal world and let's focus on some of the amazing things in science and perk up our attitudes and enjoy life for a little while. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good motto. It's a little too long, but I like that motto. <laughs> Speaking of the show, though, I have a little confession to make, Rob, and I wanted to apologize to some of our listeners who probably caught that a little bit of my audio got poor in the middle of the last episode. And did you catch anything odd? Um, if I caught something odd, I would mm-hmm. have chalked it up to my phone buffering or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I was also, I listened to that episode while I was clattering around in the kitchen and doing other odd jobs. So yeah, in fact, the, the, the phone was sitting on a counter, wasn't even always in the same room as I was. I could hear it, but so I don't know. I didn't notice. That makes complete sense. If you were listening to this while running on the treadmill or chopping some onions or taking out the garbage, who knows? (laughs) It's kind of strange that I listen. Mm -hmm. Is it strange that I listen to my own podcast? No, not really, because it's different. And I laugh and I smile and I enjoy it. No, I get that. It's all right. We'll give you a free pass. All right. All right. Good. I appreciate you listening to it because it's better to have another check or another round of checks. You could find something and we could replace the audio file. Or we could say, hey, last week we talked about such and such, but this week we could fix that, which I think we did once. Right. And, and it is also good from time to time if you're referring to a subject you have discussed in the past that you just get refreshed on what you said three months ago when you're going to bring it back up and kind of build upon what you previously introduced. So I've referred to a number of episodes when a new you are going to continue talking about the subject again. So it's helpful. So the the issue though that happened for episode 37 was that, and I've never encountered this, uh, just a brief apology. I'll make this quick. There was a part around the 19 minute mark or somewhere between 19 and 22 minutes into the recording where my audio went on the fritz and I've never seen anything like it. My voice sounded normal, but then progressively there was this digital noise that sounded like a thump 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 and then if i started to talk it got louder there was several things i said i had to completely take out of the show because they were so distracting and just annoying to listen to because of that that strange sound don't you have two audio recordings very good point so I ordinarily have uh, two audio recordings, and this time it did as well. But this is the first time that this other mistake had occurred. The backup recording was not recording from my professional audio mic equipment. It was Uh, recording through the computer. Ah, I've done that. Yeah, you know that I've done that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I know what this sounds like. It it sounded like I was coming from the bathroom or something on the other recording. So, Not too bad. Technology is the bane to all people who depend upon it. And, you know, we've had our trials, but I'm really happy with the way that most of our shows sound. So my apologies, everyone. You lost a little bit of the content, but we try to make the audio as good as humanly possible. And if the audio was a mess, we would never publish it. All right. So, Rob, let's dive into a very special year in review 2020 Rob, I I did not expect the year in review. I I knew we would do this, but I didn't expect the year in review to be such a peculiar year as 2020. Oh, tell me about it. (laughs) However, we're not going to do the history of 2020 or the malaise of 2020 or the the depression of 2020. No, we're going to do fun and interesting things that other people might not think are fun and interesting, but we thought were fun and interesting to share with our audience. Yeah, there's been 
if events that always happen year in and year out that affects science all over the world. So other than the pandemic, many interesting science discoveries, innovations, and flukes occurred. And we wanted to highlight some of our favorites. So you went to the source of all knowledge, Wikipedia. Not at first. Oh, okay. I, I was doing lots of Googling and lots of researching on websites because they're all, you know, all different science websites are coming out with, the, you know, top 10 discoveries of 2020 and things like that. And honestly, I found most of them kind of boring. And even though it might be something profound, maybe I didn't understand it well, or just like, eh, that's not interesting enough. And so I kept digging and digging and digging. And I came across the Wikipedia pages that describe on almost daily, but definitely by month, all these different scientific things. Now, I don't know who compiled it. I don't know if they missed a lot, but I probably found 50% or more of my list that we're going to present today to the audience on Wikipedia. So it's not like I'm a cheater and I'm just you know going to there for, for any sort of scientific content. It was a place where someone was pointing something out. Like, oh, yeah, that. And some of the stuff I didn't know, I hadn't heard about, and some of the stuff I did remember. So it was just a good source. Yeah. We're going to hear a lot of it. And I appreciated that you weeded out the ones you weren't especially interested in. So we just got the curated Equinox highlights of 2020. So I will begin with the first. And this one was interesting because it's it's one exception. We, hey, we make the rules and we can also break them. This was <laughs> one that was pretty good. From yesteryears, the rate of cancer dropped by 2.2% for 2016 through 17. But that was just reported this year. Right. It took them a while to get the statistics all worked out. So that was a 2020 announcement that three years ago, cancer rates dropped by a greater percentage than they've ever dropped ever. So what did they attribute this to? Is this because medicine's kind of catching up because people are taking care of their health? Or was this just a coincidence? No, I think it's an improvement in uh, healthy living and improvement in or probably people stop smoking. Mm. Honestly, I've been doing a lot of ancestry work uh, in the evenings last couple of weeks. And one of my ancestors died of uh, a mouth cancer. So, yep, he's probably a smoker. Makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother was a smoker like that and she died of complications from smoking. Yep. My grandmother died of complications from smoking. She had a tumor in the back of her throat, but she was not a smoker. Well, it is still good news. We're glad to hear that this sort of thing is uh, hopefully turning the tide for a statistic. And it makes sense what you were saying that it would affect the people who weren't smoking. So m maybe this is a good sign for decades to come that the trend line will be moving the other direction. Yes, but we will never, ever, ever eliminate cancer. It's a part of the human genetic system. Cancers will arise when mutations occur and the things that slow down cellular proliferation. You nuke that gene and that, that cell is going to start reproducing like crazy. That's called cancer. Mm. And the longer we live, the more bouts of cancer we're going to have to fight, which we've said earlier on the show some episodes ago when I said that the first person who's going to live to 200 years old is already alive statistically. Mm -hmm. We don't know who that person is, but the data is telling us that, yeah, we're going to be living that long. Well, you're not going to live that long without surviving cancer a couple of times. Interesting. Good point. Well, then you want to introduce the first of 2020? Yeah. The first big NASA report was a discovery of an Earth-sized exoplanet. Go back a couple episodes ago when we talked about exoplanets in the habitable or habitable, however you pronounce that word, the habitable zone Inhabitable. around a star. Uh, this was from the, the TESS satellite that we also described. Now, this, this star is 100 light years away. So it's awfully hard to detect planets, but it took a super sensitive system, which is a test satellite. And what they're doing is looking at stars that get brighter and dimmer in a periodic nature. When it gets just, you know, one millionth of a percent dimmer every, you know, 365 days, you say, oh, there's a planet orbiting at the same distance as Earth, depending upon the gravitational attraction of the star that is, but whatever. It's just a cool thing that the first Earth-like exoplanet was a really big deal. Mm. And they're now estimating how many Earth-like exoplanets might be out there. And there will be, in the near future, hundreds. Really? Not huh. Most of them won't be livable. They either won't have an atmosphere or they have something poisonous or the star won't be stable enough. But yeah, there will be a lot of Earth-like planets out there. 
So when you say that they're making an estimate of how many there could be, will be discovered, can they make an accurate estimation by just knowing one such example? Um, based on the number of exoplanets that we're discovering and the rate at which we're discovering them, they can start making some guesstimates. They could easily be 50% or 100% off, but uh, it's not like they're, they're just totally guessing. And my, I just got to make a comment. One thing I, I'm not crazy about with this report is the name of the planet. Why are we calling it TOY700D, lowercase <laughs> d? Like, can, can we give it a legit name? What is the thinking behind this? Joe, how can you name all the stars? Well, we're creative people. We're mankind. Oh, well. We named nine planets in our solar system. We just need to keep going. <laughs> but there aren't there aren't enough words to name all the stars. We'll be talking gibberish, which is that which is what that is. There can be Pluto, Duo, and Ludo. Yeah, when I when I go there, I'll name it Rob Star or the Star of Joe <laughs> or Home Sweet Home or whatever. I think there ought to be a really good sounding Cartate Carter, you know, Carteris Carter Carter I don't know. There's there there's got to be a good play on the word Cartesian. Cartesian. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds too close to a Cartesian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then the next story in January of 2020 was researchers develop a single molecule that can absorb sunlight from the entire visible spectrum for the production of the fuel hydrogen, harnessing more than 50% more solar energy than current solar cells can. This was huge. Yeah. Technology innovation for solar energy. Huge. Resources. And I, I remember hearing just a few years ago that solar energy was uh, very important, something that is very useful, but just very difficult because it takes so much to absorb any significant amount of the energy. Yes, but in the last several years, the cost of solar cells has plummeted and the efficiency of solar cells has only gone up. It, it is now getting to the point where solar makes sense. It wasn't true before. In fact, this year, a lot of the, uh, the science reports were, you know, someone discovers this and this and this, and they can make solar cells 10% more efficient. So well, someone does this, and it makes them 15% more efficient. Well, we've been hearing that for 10 years. But if you just keep adding all these little incremental changes, solar cells are a lot more efficient than they used to be and a lot more expensive. Interesting. So it's, it's starting to make sense to use it. Are they making more applications for them? Are they coming? Are they trickling down to consumer electronics yet, or are we still talking about like power stations and homes, homes and power stations and, and things like that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But this particular thing, though, it's not really solar power. It's not making electricity, but it's a molecule, a single molecule that can grab two photons and use them to make H two hydrogen gas from water. Basically, I mean, it's doing the reverse of what a hydrogen engine would do, which would be rip apart a hydrogen and make water. They're taking water, making hydrogen out of it. And they can use the whole spectrum. That's unbelievable. Wow. They can use infrared light. Infrared light is waste heat. It's useless until now. <laughs> so you could, you know, strap this <laughs> thing around a, a factory and take the heat the factory is producing and use that to make hydrogen. Instead of just letting it vent into the atmosphere, theoretically. I mean, it hasn't gone to industrial scale production yet, but it is a really, really cool and very exciting idea. Hmm. Do you think that we will someday be able to use solar energy for things like powering cars or powering planes, anything interesting like that? Or do you think it will remain on things on the ground? Um, just, you know, throw out a theory. What would you guess? I'm going to guess there will there have been solar powered very light planes nothing like cargo delivery or anything like that and it is possible especially when you get way up in the atmosphere lots of sunlight you know big wind surf wing area you might have enough uh oomph to have something that can fly huh. but the problem is you have 24 hours of darkness i'm oh, sorry <laughs> out of 24 hours you have 12 hours of darkness that's hard man that means you need to be able to absorb twice as much yeah. power as you re require to fly. Cars are a lot less efficient. I mean, there's been solar-powered car races for a long time. They don't go very fast. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. In, in fact, the uh, the battery technology that, that is coming out of Elon Musk and a lot of other people's innovations 
that's what's going to transform the world. Which we will be talking about soon. That's on we, our um, queue. Well, I don't know. Do we have batteries on here? I don't think so. No, I just mean a future uh, Equinox episode, the subject of Elon Musk and Tesla. Oh, yes. Yes, it's on the list. On the list. Look forward to that in 2021. Yeah, battery prices have plummeted and battery storage has only gone up and the weight to power ratio has only improved. And this is probably what killed off the idea of the hydrogen car. Why use hydrogen? There's no purpose in hydrogen vehicle transportation any longer. Oh. Because batteries simply eclipse it. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. That'll be another another discussion. Then moving on to February, nothing in particular happened, Rob, except we started this here podcast. (laughs) So I kind of see that as a innovation, a new discovery in the field of sciences. Gotta say that I'm very proud of what we've created. And in other news, the can can we can I say that I feel like your video channel, Biblical Genetics, is the sister of Equinox, and that twin sister was also born in February. Or very close to February. It might have been January. I actually don't remember when I released the first episode. I started filming in September. Right. But I didn't put out my first episode for months just because I had so much to learn about how to make videos. Wow, that was hard. But yeah, definitely sisters, definitely parallel publications. We have had a little bit of cross-fertilization, but not much. Because yeah. Equinox is about just the joy of science in general. Mm-hmm. And biblical genetics is a rather small niche. Yeah, which I'm very happy to say is an excellent resource. How many videos do you have to date? Do you remember? This is number... Uh, 40. Well, I did three that I didn't ever release. Like any good discriminant editor would. Yeah, this is actually, I think this is number 38. I think uh, Equinox and Biblical Genetics are tied. Excellent. Because I remember at the beginning, you had several already in the queue, recorded, and several edited before we got to record Equinox episode one. Did it on purpose so that, because I knew that I would get tired of this project. I tend to take things until I lose interest and then drop them. Mm -hmm. And I needed to have you know, at least 10. I think I had 15 episodes in the can before I actually released my first episode. And that lasted a couple of months. And then then I caught up to myself. And now I've been you know, making them and releasing them as I go. Well, it needs to be said that it is quite an achievement. There's no one else that's putting together content like that. You're answering so many important questions and able to provide insights like nobody else is giving us in the field of genetics and bringing them to the people. Well, thanks. We love to do this stuff on Equinox and biblical genetics is also achieving these things, making some very fascinating insights. My latest video is called RNA vaccines, pros and cons. It's been out for, um, Oh, three hours now, and it's already got half the number of views as my last video, which was out three weeks ago. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. And I, the article on RNA vaccines on creation.com, I, I lapped the, uh, the comment system. It, it, it lets you view 100 comments at once. And if you want comments number 101 and on, you have to hit next. I've never had 100 comments in an article ever, not even close, not even on my flat earth comments where everyone was really, really, really piling on with the comments. I'm not even close. And so, yeah, even now I'm looking at my email inbox here. I got one, two, three comments have come in from my YouTube video just since we started. Usually hate mail because this is such a touchy subject. (laughs) Well, then let's move on to March. March, is it my turn? Yes, sir. Okay. In March, scientists made the first announcement that they used CRISPR-Cas9 to edit a human being. Now, a couple of years ago was the announcement that those two twin, those two girls in China were born after being uh, CRISPR'd, Mm -hmm. genetically engineered. This is totally different. This is an adult who is a consenting adult who was going blind and they opened up the eyes and lifted the retina and dropped some viruses behind the retina. Those viruses contained a fixed version of a gene that they had that was broken. Oh. And just this week, we learned that... After fixing one eye, the other eye improved also. No way. Yeah. That is incredible. Eyes are weird. Eyes talk to each other. Like Louis Braille, who invented Braille, he went blind after puncturing one eye with an awl in his father's leather shop. Mm-hmm. The other eye went blind also for no reason. Oh, that'd be frustrating. It happens often. It's sympathetic 
eyes. They, they somehow, for some weird reason, they talk to each other. Very interesting. So did the virus pass down the optic nerve and pass back up the other optic nerve? Probably not. Are there little corpuscles that share RNA between the eyes that travels down through the optic nerve? Interesting, yeah. Mm, that might mean that it also goes to the brain. Oh, wait, hey, wait a minute. So something very strange was happening there. But this was the first time ever performed officially on a human being. And it's... The, the prognosis is good that they might actually have fixed or at least prevented any further decay in the person's vision, which is guaranteed. They would have gone completely blind if they were not already. Wow. Yeah. You just made me realize that just the science, uh, the creation behind eyeballs is a fascinating science field. It is an unusual thing that the brain processes and material that the eye is we we really could just dedicate a whole episode about eyeballs. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Compare some interesting types of different biology. You know, the eye is not a camera. Right. The eye is a computer. Oh, see, uh, I wasn't thinking of it like that. It does data processing and then sends information to the brain. It's not pixel by pixel. So it's not going to the brain to be processed. Oh. There's a lot of processing happens in the brain, but the eye, the first thing it does is it detects, it detects edges. It sends a wireframe to the brain, and then it fills in the wireframe with color. That is awesome. Et cetera. It's a, okay, wow. great. Put that on the list. Mm -hmm. How eyes work and things like that, or just the eye. I like that. All right. So moving on beyond March, I celebrated my birthday in April. Uh, Rob, when's your birthday? November. That's right. I celebrated your birthday. I remember that. That's right. Birthday party at your house. Right. <laughs> Again, when we record these episodes nice and late, I just, my short-term memory and my memory fails me in general. So then besides that, there's nothing that we wanted to highlight from April. And then May, I celebrated my first wedding anniversary. That was a wonderful occasion. And we were very excited about that. May is a lovely time to get married, Rob. Uh, I got to tell you. Then... We move into June. Now we get back to the science news. I'll let you read this one. <laughs> uh, you'll let me. Thank you. <laughs> wow, I'm so privileged. <laughs> Duck poop contains live fish eggs. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I'm not terribly surprised because I know that there are other things that can get through digestive processes and come out the other side. Like corn? Um, I mean, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah, or maybe a penny or a... I Penny? know that there are okay. parasites. Yeah, but there's also an example of I forget what kind of animal, um, mar, you know, varmint it is. But there's some animal that they feed coffee beans. <laughs> yes. Then supposedly uh, ooh, ooh, they're ooh. unique premium <laughs> coffee beans that they ah. sell. Oh, I'm dying. <laughs> yes. This is, no. No. Don't. No. People. People. Please behave. But this is an interesting point. Ducks can. But a, a fish egg is not mm -hmm. a coffee bean. It's squishy and soft, and you wouldn't expect it to not be digested. And it was no. actually a big surprise. So would this mean that theoretically that there could be fish alive today that first went through the digestive tract and then yep. got back into the river and the oceans and the lakes and survived? Yep. That is incredible. It also helps explain biogeography. And the distribution of different fishes. Oh, because the they're spreading not necessarily where you would expect them to be all the time. And they might get to a place faster than you might expect. Oh, that is wild. So before we're like, oh yeah, they must have stuck to the, the duck feather or his, their feet when they're flying or something like that. And yeah, so they had a valid way of getting fish eggs around. But now actually it's through the digestive tract which is a whole different ball of wax. It's a really, really cool idea. Actually, it also helps biblical ideas of the spread of fishes after the flood. Oh. So if, if they're only surviving yeah. in one place, well, they can get around from that one place as soon as the duck lands in the water starts gobbling up some of the fish eggs. Cool. So would this mean that the researchers had this hypothesis and then set out to prove it? Do you know? Or was this just discovered along the way? Like, oh, look at this, guys. There's this. Hey. Do you see these eggs? Yeah. You know, which, which, what was it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, something's telling me this is a serendipitous discovery, but I'm not sure. And I don't want to negate the work of good scientists here. Okay. All right. And I'm wondering now, though, 
I wonder if maybe the fish eggs are extra tasty to the duck or if the fish provides something like, you know, sugars or something or some sort of nutrition on the outside, but the inside doesn't get digested. I wonder if there's a mutualism here. Hmm. Can you explain what a mutualism is? It's something that benefits both parties. Not necessarily obvious why they do it until you realize with a little more investigation, oh, look at that. This is actually something that was good for both parties. Interesting. Yes. Instead of the uh, you know evolutionary red and tooth and claw sort of idea. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I'm always looking for mutualisms because that's God's design. Everything else is broken. Well, that is why this episode is going to get a crude PG tag rating you know, on the podcast sphere. Going to have to warn people that it, it gets a little bit crude in this episode because <laughs> of that subject. All right. This, to me, was totally cool. Totally cool. This goes back to a conversation I was having with a creationist physicist years ago. And we're sitting at a, a restaurant and we're talking and I was just idly twirling my, my coffee uh, coaster or coffee saucer. And I, I stopped. I said, wait a minute. And I looked at him. I think I've recounted this story on Equinox before. And I, I said, does the universe spin? And he goes, that's a very interesting question. You're not the first person to think of that. We can't know. Say, so what do you mean? He goes, because we can only detect the light arriving now. If, if the whole universe were whirling around us, we wouldn't know. We only can see it, see a star or a galaxy where it was when it released the light. I said, oh, what a pain in the neck. <laughs> but this, this new idea, when you look at um, pictures of space and you see lots of galaxies in a picture, they look like they're all oriented randomly. Oh, Fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But after scanning hundreds of thousands of galaxies, they found a 2% correlation. Doesn't sound like a lot. What do you mean by 2%? That means that most of them are random. 2% are not random. 2% are aligned. Wait a minute. How do you determine that something is or isn't random by its alignment? And just like, all we're looking at is it's, like It's dots. the law of big numbers. Really? Yeah. Whoa. If you would expect, you know, given, let's say, 100,000 galaxies... And 360 different degrees in two different directions. Well, I don't know how they measure because you can turn it in two different ways. But all the different possible orientations, you'd expect maybe 0.1% of all the galaxies would line up in any particular orientation. Left to right, up or down, you know, all the different ways you can twist the three-dimensional object. But too many of them line up. Mm. Way more. I mean, the chance is like 1 in 40 billion huh. that this many would line up. And yet, according to Big Bang Theory... If two things are more than 13 billion light years away, they've never been causally connected. Oh. They can't see each other. They're expanding away from each other faster than the speed of light. So they were expanding faster than they were taking shape. No. So they took those galaxies were taking shape after they had expanded and spread apart enough that they wouldn't have had any influence on each other. Is that the theory? They're invisible to one another. Okay. They're literally moving away faster than the speed of light from each other. There's no connection between those things. There's no physical connection, period. Now, we can see both of them because they're not 13 billion year, light years away from us. They might be 8 billion in one direction and 5 billion in the other. So we can see them, but the other ones can't see each other. Now, granted, I'm using Big Bang terminology. Don't agree with it, but this is just part of their model, which makes this fun. And what they showed was that, hey, you know, the galaxy's over in this direction, a lot of them are spinning exactly the same orientation of the galaxies over in that direction. And the only way to explain that is if there's a larger structure to the universe, something unexpected. The whole thing about Big Bang is random, unconnectedness. It's one of the giant assumptions behind it that there's not an overarching reason for any sort of large-scale structure. Because if there is, wait a minute, maybe there's something different going on. Maybe the physics is different. And one of the other things that came out of the study was they determined, according to their own Big Bang ideas, that some parts of the universe are expanding faster than others. Hmm. And all the, the warning lights went on in my mind when I heard that. That violates another assumption of the Big Bang theory is is isotropy, that the universe is isotropic, that it's the same everywhere you go. Oh, uh, yeah, it would make sense. Mm -hmm. If some parts are expanding faster than others, you can't date any particular part. Hmm. craziness anyway yeah little hints of inconsistencies in big bang theory which i love that in itself doesn't disprove it it's just one more little inconsistency to add to the very long list of inconsistencies 
So after we had a June wrap up, we didn't have anything to note in July, but I'm sure scientists were very busy everywhere. Then in uh, August, we got the dwarf planet Ceres is water rich. So one thing I know about Ceres, Rob, and maybe it was one of the reasons for the cause of confusion. I remember when we had our episode about the solar system, you mistakenly misplaced the asteroid belt. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. But, but grant you, it, it is easy to get those out of order. And what's interesting about Ceres is that it is a dwarf planet in the solar system as part of the asteroid belt. Yes. And so we don't usually talk about the dwarfs like we do the regular planets, but it's a, it's an interesting point. It, it, if you... If you've come across Ceres, it just looks like a smaller moon. Yeah. It kind of resembles our moon from the photography. Yeah. And it do, it doesn't seem all that big. And it's got lots of craters all over the place from being hit, pummeled. But it's large enough to be a sphere. Right. That's the cool thing about it. It's big enough that gravity squishes everything into a sphere. It's not like a blob or an oblong, like a potato shape. I was just trying to see if I could find an example for the radius dimensions it's 500 500 miles in diameter i think might be the radius it looks like the radius is 469 and the diameter is 939 okay so 500 i guess i rounded but nothing to sniff at nope so it's got water and mars doesn't that's not fair oh no that's another announcement from this year the detection of water emanating from the middle of Mars, not the, the polar regions where we know that there are ice caps. Oh, yeah. And water and maybe even liquid water. But water is coming out of the ground of Mars. Whoa. The occasional dust storms lift that water into the upper atmosphere where sunlight obliterates it and rips it apart into hydrogen and oxygen. So Mars is constantly losing water. And that means there might be a lot of water under the surface of Mars, which is a between the, the series announcement and the Mars announcement, this is good news for human exploration. Because if we have abundant water, we can live. We can live very well if there's a lot of water. If there's not a lot of water, we're going to struggle. So this is a article from September of 2020. It says, researchers have detected a group of lakes hidden under the red planet's icy surface. From this story, they had three that they had identified so far. Cool. Well, yes, it's a very cold planet, Rob. Is there anything else about Ceres to note? They, I mean, they got water, but does that mean it's... Whenever they say water, it's not like if we melted the cubes of ice, it would come out as Crystal Springs water that you could drink, right? I mean, oh, gonna, no, it's usually salty or contaminated with something, but we can run this through a filter. We can mm -hmm. do reverse osmosis, electrolysis. We can clean up water in a lot of different ways. But water also allows industry. What would that mean? I mean, all these different industrial processes are going to happen, have to happen at, in space colonies. Oh, yeah. They're going to require water, cement, and whatever else. So they need to take advantage of that kind of thing. Yes. We need tons of water, not just enough to keep a human hydrated. We need a lot more than that. Interesting. Could you imagine being the first person to swim in a pool on Mars? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, That'd be a story. Is it my turn? Yes, sir. All right. One of the largest uh, stars in the sky, in the constellation of Orion. I like to pronounce it Betelgeuse, not Betelgeuse. Dumb movie anyway. Yeah, yeah it does look kind of like that. Betelgeuse. It's one of the only stars we've actually been able to image the surface of the star. It's not a point of light. It's large enough that we can actually measure its size. It's close enough that we can do that too. But this year, twice... It had a sudden dimming. It went from a big bright star to not quite so bright. And what? On? The star got smaller and it came back again twice. What? Yes. Scientists have traced this to a, a super, super hot jet of material that got ejected from the star. So in other words, it's not stable. It's a boiling cauldron. Oh. And some people are worried it's going to go supernova. And that's not good because it's too close to us. Really? Yeah. I mean, it, it, huh. well, the light is getting here now. So whatever happened, happened a long time ago, all this jet, the jet and the wobbling and, and the dimness, and it's now reaching us. If that thing goes supernova, it already went supernova. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't know it yet. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what exactly that would mean for our solar system? Uh, no. It might sterilize life on Earth. Mm, wow. It depends. Depends on all sorts of different things. Um, but a couple of months later... In 
August, they realized that they had Betelgeuse wrong. What? It's actually 25% closer than they thought. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> but that means it's also smaller than they thought. Oh, that's because one that of the is better. few stars we know its diameter in the sky. We can measure the width in a super powerful telescope. And if it's closer, that means it's smaller. Weird, huh? Yeah. Wow. How is it we missed that? Guys, uh, <laughs> it's a lot closer than we thought. Whoa. It's like, you know, it's like when you're, you've got your binoculars and you're, you're looking at something out in the backyard and all of a sudden your kid like pipes up right in front of the lenses. Whoa. <laughs> way too close. Which they always will if you have a pair of binoculars. <laughs> yes. And then for a change of subject, we enter into September and genetic analysis of 400 ancient Vikings showed us that many of them came from far away. Now, that is not to say that they came from another planet, but what we mean is from another land. And would that mean that some of them were natives to the region and then they intermarried? Is that what we discovered? Intermarried or slaves or yeah, they conquered. just join the raiding party hey can i come along too guys yeah sure yeah it seems what a lot of conquerors like to do well the whole idea of you know the blonde hair blue-eyed viking is wrong there are a lot of people that would not look like your typical you know stereotypical i should say not most it's not like every scandinavian has blonde hair and blue eyed that's ridiculous it's not true right but a lot of vikings would not have looked like that because they came from far afield they were not a a homogenous race of people. They collected a lot of other people along the way. Hmm. Cool. That is very interesting. So when they say that they had 400 Vikings, were they looking at their genes and comparing their genes? Was that how they determined this sort of thing? Yep. How much did they learn from the genetic information? Was there more that they could glean from that? Oh, I'm sure they're going to be uh, gleaning information from the study for a good long while. Because ancient DNA, it it's gotten so good now oh, okay. that they've almost got you know high quality genomes from ancient people, which is unbelievable. We didn't even, the thousand genomes project wasn't even high quality, and that was living people. Now they're taking people who died a thousand years ago and getting very good data out of it. it the technology is improving incredibly quickly. How far back could it go? Would we learn more from genetic information of people more than 1,000 years old, 2,000 yes. years old? Yes. Or does it kind of break down around 2,000? Um, I can't exactly say. Hmm. You're not going to get a super high-quality genome from a 100,000-year-old individual. I mean, the DNA would, would just simply be eradicated, which is one reason why when we pull all this DNA out of Neanderthals, I don't think they're 100,000 years old. But we have gotten some pretty good results, even from Neanderthals, that they claim, you know, 30,000-year-old Neanderthal. And I'm going to say, okay, this is early post-flood. Still, this is um, pretty recent. Well, then you want to introduce October? Yeah, October was an amazing month. Some weird things happened. The first thing I remember in October was uh, scientists saying that they had found a very odd thing in the atmosphere of Venus. It's something called phosphine. Now, phosphorus is usually in phosphate form, but biological life can make something called PH3 or phosphine. It's a, it's a metabolic byproduct for a lot of microorganisms. And they detected phosphine. They said, oh, there's life on Venus. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, early, as soon as that report came out, people were like, man, your detection is off. You're, you did something screwy with, your, with your, um, your instruments. And sure enough, several months later, they went back and they checked everything and said, oh, you know what, guys? Yeah, we retract that claim. It, it didn't really happen. Too, Too bad. bad. Because I could imagine life being in Venus's upper atmosphere somehow. I mean, we have microorganisms in our upper atmosphere. I don't know if they live up there, but they're definitely bacteria. The thing is, they can never cycle down to the lower atmosphere because then the sulfuric acid clouds would eat them. One time you were talking about the moon and you mentioned that some microorganisms could have gotten to the moon. Is it possible that any could have gotten from Earth to Mars and Venus? Uh, yes and yes. Venus is even easier because it's falling toward the sun. The problem is that the heat of reentry would would sterilize any rock from Earth. Plus, the transfer through the solar system. I mean, the sun is really hot in space. Space is not cold. Space is burning hot, 
and any rock flying through space is going to be rotating and basically cooking on every side. So the possibility of life getting off of Earth is remote, but it's not zero. So then also in October, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft briefly touches down on Bennu. Bennu! <laughs> great name. <laughs> yeah. Now, see, now, that sounds like a name I can get behind for a body out there in space. They're doing it right. It sounds like something out of the Star Wars universe, actually. Oh, and it looks like something out of the Star Wars universe. It's not like series. It's not a round thing. It looks like a flying bar of gravel and it's not very big so there wasn't much gravity just enough gravity to hold all the particles together but when the spacecraft touched it it sunk and the legs of the lander went down like a foot instantly Ooh, and they had it huh. it was they had like a scoopy thing that was designed to like come down and grab some of the material and they blast away and they're going to take the material back to earth but the scoop was too full. And they're like, we don't want to lose anything, but we have to shut the scooper because we're going to lose everything. And 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 it took them a while to figure out how to close it because it was like jammed with gravel. <laughs> it was like landing on a rocky marshmallow. <laughs> Total surprise. Nobody expected that. Oh, that's unfortunate. And yet they did it. And they got the thing closed and it's coming back to Earth. And two years from now, three years from now, we will have landing on Earth if everything else goes right a box full of rocks that came from an asteroid. I mean, how cool wow. is that? <laughs> yeah, that is very awesome. So when we talk about space rocks, do you know that they would be from Bennu? Could you find rocks like those rocks on planet Earth? Probably not. But um, as far as asteroids go, there are a lot of different types of asteroids and each type has a different composition. Hmm. But I bet there are a lot of other asteroids like Bennu. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. There are people who are estimated there are quadrillions of dollars worth of rare metals out on asteroids like gold and platinum and things like that. Oh, interesting. But iron would be more useful for space civilization. Oh, yes. Gold, hmm. what, whatever. Okay, electronic contacts for things maybe. But gold, it, it's not. we're not going to have a gold-based economy. In space. A gold-based rush in space. Yeah. <laughs> gold rush. And once you find that asteroid that's a mile wide made 100% of gold, well, gold cr <laughs> gold prices across the solar system will crash because you just flooded the market. <laughs> that, that is hilariously bad, but it's, it just makes sense that that's exactly what would happen. It sounds like something out of a science fiction novel. I'm sure somebody's done it. I just haven't come across it. So the best thing that happened in November, we're going to save to the end. Oh. Because this is the best thing that happened all year. This is just, we got to save it. Yes. All right. Okay. So my turn? Yes, sir. All right. December. December was awful. December was horrible. The Arecibo radio telescope collapsed. Oh. At one point, this was the largest radio telescope in the world. Uh, one of the James Bond movies had a famous fight scene there. It, mm -hmm. it was rewatched that movie earlier this year. Okay. It was just a, uh, basically an old crater in Puerto Rico and the thing couldn't do anything but point straight up, but it could do radar ranging. They had a radar generator that could hit the, uh, the dish and then be focused out into space, hit something and bounce back. So they could measure distances to various things in the solar system using this. This is really cool. Now the Chinese have recently completed a larger uh, radio telescope, but they can't do radar ranging with theirs. They can just receive radar signals from space. And we have no replacement for this. Just watching the videos of the cable snapping and the whole thing collapsing. And it was actually amazing. It, the, the whole, the destruction process. They, they, there was a crew there, they had a drone flying next to one of the wires when it snapped and the drone is just a few feet from the from the tower when the tower comes crumbling down <laughs> what a cool video oh, wow but it was sad because this is a an icon that we have lost now and i don't know if it'll be replaced or not uh, i don't know how much it would cost to fix it it was built in the 60s and we they had a good life out of it it's just yeah. sad to lose this do you know if it fell apart because of wear and tear and age or was it something unexpected like a even an earthquake or something like that. Um, no, I think um, a couple of weeks ago, one of the major anchors in one of the concrete towers pulled out unexpectedly. 
And that completely threw the balance of all the tension of all the wires off. And there's too much weight on a couple of wires and another one snapped. And they're like, it's going to fall. There's nothing we can do about it now. And sure enough, it came down. The next story is that uh, SpaceX, very exciting stuff. Their Starship hop happened just earlier this month. Rob, I have to confess. I'm sorry. I haven't paid attention to the story. I Dude, heard about it what? on Twitter. It, you, what? It, I just got busy. No. It's, Dude, I, no. You drop everything in life to watch a SpaceX Starship hop, man. This is um, um this is the future. This is humanity going to going to Mars and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm kidding. I am ashamed. And plus it was just a flying to uh, a flying uh, thermos, basically. It looked like a silo, but it worked. When we say that the Starship hopped, what does that mean? Does it mean it, it took off, it went somewhere, it landed, it took off again, went somewhere else and landed again? Almost. <laughs> <laughs> they went on three engines way up in the air, far enough that I mean, you could easily see the curve of space, uh, the curve of the Earth from, from almost space. And then they brought it down again and landed it in the same spot or right next to the same spot it took off from. But the way they decided to bring it down was, you know, if you want to use a rocket to get up and then throttle it down a little bit and slowly descend, that would take a lot of rocket fuel. So instead, they said, we got this giant silo. This thing is not going to fly very well if we fly it sideways. So they did a belly flop. <laughs> and they're belly flopping down toward Earth, this gigantic, you know, very tall and extremely wide. This is wider than most rockets people are familiar with. It doesn't look that big because it's so fat. It's it, it's weird. It's not the right proportions. Oh. And as they're belly flopping down, 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 they restarted the engines and stood up right before it crashed. And then almost did a perfect landing on the cement pad where it's supposed to land, except it, it hit a little too hard <laughs> and blew up when it hit the ground. <laughs> the thing looks awesome, though. It looks so, sort of... It's so Buck Rogers, man. It's so Buck Rogers. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's got those big wings, and the wings were actually functional and helped it to fly. I love it. And well, that was Starship 8. Starship 9 is almost ready to go. And 10 and 11 are in the wings. I mean, they're, they're cranking these out. SpaceX also launched more rockets this year than any other company. They just had another one go off Cape Canaveral just recently. I just saw another video. Um, one of my favorite YouTubers is Scott Manley. Scott Manley. Scott Manley. Um, he does a lot of space stuff. Yeah, the Everyday Astronauts, another one of my favorites. He's just a regular guy. But Scott Manley was um, just today commenting on a, a little teeny rocket that was made in California, shipped up to Alaska, and another company. And they're doing little things with very simple technology. And they launched that thing out into space. And they got a video of it. And yeah. So we have all these different comp competing companies trying to take the slice of the future pie and it's going to be huge as long as we don't have a giant war as long as the economy doesn't crash whatever we're going to mars this month has been a very eventful month already for 2020 it has been the next story was the rna vaccines it's going to change a lot was it my turn oh i might as well do rna vaccines since i wrote a giant article and 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 did this this is almost half an hour long YouTube video, which is now flooding my inbox with comments. And I have five comments that have come in since we started recording. <laughs> RNA vaccines. I don't, hey audience, I don't care what your view of vaccines is. I don't care if you think they're dangerous or not. Put that all aside. Just from the technology of this, this is amazingly cool. I don't think anybody was expecting it. For comparison, if you're new to the subject, it kind of reminded me of how few years ago people were all excited about things like 1080p HD televisions and then everybody very quickly learned about 4K before they before they had gotten their 1080p television home they announced 4K but then in the news i just heard today that they decided upon the standards that will allow for 8K yeah that's coming but then you know what they are also talking about is holograms I mean, people are talking about this sort of thing. And the reason I put that out there, it's kind of like, wait a minute, what? Holograms? Well, it's kind of like that. To me, the sound of RNA vaccines versus the, everything you already knew about vaccines. Everything you know about 4K and 8K and 1080p, it's just the same thing, but bigger. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, we're working on holograms. And that's not the same story, but it's going to 
meet a particular interest in the visual medium. And that's how RNA vaccines strikes me. Yeah. The first vaccine was literally dried scab pus from a cow injected into a human arm. (laughs) Why we thought that was a good idea. Well, I'm sure they had a very good idea. Yeah. It protected against smallpox. Right. But it took us thousands of years to get to the point we we realized that that would be a good idea. That was the beginning (laughs) of the end for smallpox, which was finally eradicated a couple decades ago. But that was crazy. It was unhygienic. It was, it would not pass any modern safety protocols. And yet, just about all vaccines up until recently were, let's take something, a bacteria, a protein, a virus, a heat-killed virus, a slow-down virus, whatever, just, you know, parts of stuff and stick it in your arm and your body will start making antibodies to it. But the RNA vaccine is like, no, let's just put RNA and get the cell to take it up, and then the cell will start making the protein, and the body will naturally make antibodies to that protein, and boom, it worked. And we're talking 90 95% uh, efficacy rates. And even though there are some reports of bad uh, vaccine reactions in a couple of people, this is true. But compared to the number of people that would die if they got COVID-19, the number of people that would die if they get the vaccine is much, 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 much less And there's great hope that this is going to start working toward the end of this silly pandemic. But even so, it doesn't matter if you think that the virus is not dangerous or not. Just from a scientific standpoint, this is really cool. It allows us to develop vaccines literally in a couple of days. I think they made this in a weekend. Wow. A Chinese scientist released the, the genetic sequence of the virus and I think over that weekend, they said, oh, well, take the sequence, go to the DNA printer, hit print, boom, done. And they've been testing the safety of it ever since then. So most of the vaccine development now is not in paperwork. I mean, the, the paperwork for developing vaccines was insane. It was Byzantine. It took a decade. And by that point, it probably wasn't any good anymore. This took a week. And then you have to start testing it for efficacy and safety. And they're only going to get better. I mean, yeah. it, in, in the future, it might be that you go and get one shot and all your vaccines are in that one shot. <laughs> wow. Uh, and that's not, oh, that's too many. No, it's not too many. The number of viruses and bacteria that our body has to fight off every single day is many more times the number of things that we'll be vaccinated against. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So anyway. Very interesting discovery. I think that maybe not necessarily the most interesting, but still probably just about the most important for 2020s situations. So that's very good news. We needed a silver lining to 2020. And maybe that kind of circumstance is what it took to make this important discovery. Well, we do need a silver lining. And I'm going to let you read to the audience the silver lining. But this is the most exciting thing, maybe even in my entire life. <laughs> Go. So the good news is that, you know, we knew about chocolate. Chocolate! It's good for the heart. It is what everybody wants. It's at the top of their Christmas wish list. They want it overflowing their stockings. It'll give them Christmas cheer. So neuroscientists reported that a small randomized double-blind within-subject study of healthy young adults shows that dietary flavanols with cocoa powder can improve brain oxygenation mm. at suboptimal baseline cerebro cerebro <laughs> baseline cerebrovascular <laughs> reactivity to CO2 and when cognitive demand is high cognitive performance so that means it's good for college kids chocolate just might help you get through class everybody they just use a giant double-blind, placebo-controlled, blah, 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 statistically defensible study to show that chocolate (laughs) helps your brain. I'm so happy. This is what mankind is best at, finding the real answers, making everybody (laughs) happy. And at the end of this year, we can all say we're happy because we can eat chocolate because this actually really is good for you. When you have that new hot chocolate, this... uh, holiday season, you can thank God for hot chocolate. And he knew that your body needed it. So he made it taste good. (laughs) 
unlike cod liver oil, <laughs> which is also very good for you. But <laughs> So can you tell me again what flavanols are? Um, they're just a chemical that is found in a lot of foods. Flavines are common. They're basis of a lot of biochemistry. Is, it, is the word flavor and flavin related? Like the fla- it has a flava um, flavor? Maybe, but it might be that they're um, just found in a lot of things that have flavor. If there's a specific formula for them, you know, flavones and flavanols and, and things like that. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Okay. I don't, I don't remember enough of the chemistry, but I do know they have a, several carbon rings and several oxygens and OHs sticking off them. They're complicated little chemicals. So when I first read this headline, I was a little disappointed because I misread it. I thought they were saying that the neuroscientists had taken flavanols, which were good for you, and put them together with cocoa powder, and that together they found that this was improving brain functionality. But that's not what they're saying. They're actually saying the flavanols in the cocoa powder are the stuff that are good for you. Mm. So you don't need to add an enriched cocoa powder. You don't need to put something additional to it. No. However, audience, I would highly encourage you to get away from the cheap, sugary, American watered-down milk chocolate nonsense. No, no, no. Go to a nice, high-quality, dark mm, chocolate. Yes. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? I love dark chocolates of many varieties. Yeah, I love all sorts of dark chocolates. I've tried many. One of my favorites are called cocoa nibs. We get them at the Cab Farmer's Market. Mm. It's just cacao. They're incredibly bitter. They're crunchy. They're little, they're just little teeny things. I mean, they're, just, they're like smaller than a pea. Chopped up cacao and you put them in your mouth and you chew them up or you let them sit there and soak. Sometimes they taste almost banana-like. Mm. Those are the good ones. Oh, nice. But it's just like you can't get more chocolate than that. No. Most people like to add a little bit of sugar to it. Maybe a little bit of something to make it a little more creamy. Uh-huh. That's hardcore chocolate lover stuff there. The older I get, the more I like subtle sweetness. Yes. It's okay. You you go ahead and doctor it a little bit, but it goes a long way. My wife made for me and her today a caramel mocha. She didn't expect it to be as good as it was. That would sell like crazy at the farmer's market. Yum. I know. I'm sorry, man. You got me thinking about sweet stuff now. I need to go get a fix. Oh. Rob, this has been awesome. That is 2020, everybody. The year in review for science. I don't know that I listened to any other science reviews for years, year in and year out. So I feel pretty good about this one. Let me know if any of our listeners came across others that they enjoyed. I'd actually like to hear about it on Twitter. You can find me. I'm at JCS Darnell. And let them know uh, if you liked this one, share that with your friends and family too. Uh, Rob, anything else you wanted to discuss? I just want to throw out there, uh, tell everyone that we are on MeWe and we have an Equinox podcast MeWe group. And there's one particular person, thank you, sir, who's uh, commenting a lot. Excellent. Um, basically everyone. But you can get on there also. Yeah. I okay. uh, don't know much about MeWe, but I'm on there with my biblical genetics and now Equinox. Um, I just We just decided to do that instead of Facebook just because, you know, anyway. Makes sense. Uh, we're yeah. there and we want to hear from you. You can communicate with us. Excellent. And everybody, just a heads up because this is a podcast and we typically release episodes between Wednesday and Friday. The uh, schedule for next week and the week after, we're going to take a break for two weeks so that you enjoy Christmas the way you should and all the holidays that you can get. I hope that you are going to have a wonderful, happy holiday season. We will be back with you the week of January 4th. So look around your podcast app for a new episode between January 6th and January 8th. The sooner the better. And thank you, audience, for a wonderful 2020. You made made Equinox what it is by just being here and listening. And we appreciate so much the the group that we have is listening. We love you. I think that they are some of the brightest stars in the galaxy. (laughs) So thank you again for joining us for this quest. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with your friends and family. If you want to dig deeper into just a slew of topics from today's episode, you can find the links to stuff that Rob and I introduced in the show notes on our website. They're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 39. 
The show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone or iPad or your computer. And uh, you should also check out biblicalgenetics.com, which is Rob's other project, sister of the show. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube. And is it also on MeWe? It is also on MeWe. Look at there. All right, where you can catch the videos and join discussions and comments. If you want to find me, I said I'm on Twitter. I'm at JCS Darnell. Or uh, take a listen to my other show, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. And until next time, next year, actually, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And thank you for listening to Equinox.